Welcome to the I Dare You podcast by United Against Human Trafficking. I'm your host, Elaine Andino, and we believe that together we can end exploitation. Welcome to part two of our interview with Tamika Walker. Thank you so much, Elaine. And Meenal Patel Davis. Happy to be here. Let's dive back in. So let's bring it a little bit to what the city's response is, because Houston, talking about what we can be proud of for Houston, Houston's the first city to ever have a response from a mayor's office. Mm -hmm. So normally we look at uh, trafficking through a law enforcement lens, and that is generally the first question people ask us is about law enforcement. So you came in, you're like, we're going to look at this from a different lens. Tell us what your approach was as a city to fight trafficking. So, you know, we tried early on thinking we could amplify some of the things law enforcement was doing, but a lot has changed since 2015. It wasn't a very welcoming space. Um, They also weren't open to having a policy person working in this space. So while I'd like to make it sound like the direction we took was voluntary, it was involuntary. I was was, was there with you. Yeah, yeah, it was forced. You know, you were like elbowed out of the room. Um, essentially. And so it was good, though, because those things have their purpose, right? And right. you just have to be mature enough to realize that I'm not sure I was at the time I am now, but it forced a different direction. And so it was like, okay, well, I have this job. We have to do something. That's not working. And so it was great, though, because it's it's where we needed to be where nobody else was. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we did is start a strategic assessment. And we literally, we could say in 2015, we knew every single anti-trafficking initiative that was happening across the United States. We literally talked to over 250 stakeholders. Yes, most of them were in the criminal justice system or in law enforcement, but we found faith-based nonprofits, other nonprofits, and we made an inventory of all of the things they were doing. We looked at those things to see what we could also do here. Um, obviously, everything, we, you know, we couldn't do everything because it could have been a DA's office and things like that. But And then we came up with our own policy recommendations and things based on the mayor's office's strengths, right? Mm -hmm. So there's weaknesses in our mayor's office. He doesn't oversee the schools, right? They don't report up to him. HISD's independent school district here, independent of the mayor's office. The airports do, though. So, you know, you had all these strengths. You had all these assets. And so we did the assessment, you know, both the national and a local landscape assessment. We wouldn't do anything without talking to the people here. Um, And we assessed all of that information against the strengths and weaknesses of the mayor's office. Um, And we came up with a strengths-based gap-filling plan. And I think the first one was over 30 pages. Um, It included our executive summary, but the first objective of ours was to institutionalize the city of Houston's response, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this major U.S. city. We have 22 or 23 departments, including airports, procurement, uh, our health department, different divisions of HPD that, you know, are critical, but maybe not the trafficking unit. Um, And I can go on and on. We have municipal jails overseen by HPD, and we all know that victims were being arrested. And so they were going to end up in our municipal jail. Mm -hmm. And so we had all these touch points, all these assets, and we had to figure out a way to leverage it. So the first thing we did is understand that we're a strong mayor system. That means the mayor essentially controls the council, city council agenda every week. And so that means if he wants to put a hotel ordinance on the agenda, it gets on the agenda for vote. Um, It's not as easy as it sounds because it took us four and a half years with uh, negotiating with stakeholders and a lot of other things to pass the hotel ordinance that the city of Houston has. So passing those kinds of laws is a big deal. 
um, and a big strength of ours. And so our hotel ordinance essentially um, requires the 500 plus hotels in our cities to train on trafficking and also certify with our regulatory agency. But our regulatory agency also goes out and can find them. Um, and so it doesn't involve police. Now, you're not putting additional burdens on police. You have a, a regulatory inspector that's able to go out and find. Um, and we're able to get some consistency as to what does a training for the hotel industry constitute or look like. So that's one example. We also did some work with the massage establishment ordinances. But the other thing is we mobilized these city departments. So we've worked with the airport system. The biggest thing they can do is you have 50 million people come through IAH on a pre-COVID year. Um, and so 60 plus million in all three of our airports, right? This is a huge touch point for awareness. So we did a media campaign or bits of the media campaign that we've done together um, in the airport system. Our procurement, when you talk to the procurement folks, what you learn is the largest thing the city does with our $5 billion budget is procure labor. So if we're procuring labor, are we doing it conscientiously? Are we doing it safely? Are we doing it with some kind of accountability built in all the way down the supply chain? And so we got to research all of these things and look all of these things up. And it took us a year and a half with legal on and off and a lot of great people um, from the nonprofit community and the coalition um, that pushed us and made sure we stayed on it. And it's, it resulted in the mayor's executive order, which is a zero tolerance policy for all of our contracts. And we've got trafficking language going into every single city contract. And it's just an additional way to actually terminate that contract. And if they don't want to comply, they have to submit a waiver to our division. The only person that can sign the waiver is the person who sits in the role that I have. So for now it's me, but it could be anybody at any time. And so, um, that's what we do for Objective One. The second thing we work to do is raise awareness, but we do it at scale. So I mentioned the media campaign that we did with United Against Human Trafficking. It was 90 million impressions, right? We got it on every medium available to us. Um, we have mayor's office events because when it's a mayor's office event, one, you can get the national and international trafficking stars, you know, to come to Houston. Um, and they've done that at his invitation, whereas they might not come if I had invited them when I was at a, you know, small nonprofit or something. Right. Um, so we've leveraged every emotional and social network available to us, including the mayor's, you know, network. Um, so my favorite event was conscientious capitalism, yeah. labor trafficking in the supply so chain. So good. And the reason I loved it is because the corporate community had not previously been messaged to in that way, where we're talking about corporate risk mitigation. You know, unless you talk to them in their language, they're not going to be very likely to move. So you have to find what their language is. And for them, you have to present it to them as a legal, financial, and reputational risk, right. period. Um, so that's what we do to raise awareness at scale. Um, we've had other events as well. The third thing we do is we filled or helped to fill gaps in the services that we saw in Houston based off of our local landscape analysis. And it started in and around the Super Bowl. The rhetoric was unclear at that time. It was changing. New, new research was coming out. But without, with or without that, we knew that there were outreach agencies doing outreach that had very little support from law enforcement at the time. Um, and they were driving victims around eight hours a day to find a bed. That's notable that you're doing that, but unacceptable that that's the only option for a victim. So we worked very quickly with the Salvation Army to put beds on reserve. Um, we did that contract in three weeks with them. We paid them a very small amount, and it's a guaranteed placement of at least eight or 12 beds. The, the beds have changed. They never turn anybody away. 
and we opened it up to the amazing nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Do this the really hard work every day. Um, do the outreach and serve people in crisis. Serve people that are looking at getting out of it. And so, all of those people are able to place there, and there's very little administrative burden. Right? They don't have to do a lot. So one of the things we like to do is. Ease the administrative burdens, the legal burdens, the financial burdens on nonprofits. So they didn't have to negotiate the contract. They didn't have to pay the bill. All they have to do is send us a voucher so we can collect data. Mm -hmm. So we did that. It was okay Mm -hmm. because leaving victims in a homeless shelter, we all knew, but there was no better option, is not a great idea. But instead of saying that that's not a best practice, we improved on what we did. Um, We put an annex office there with case managers. And those case managers help no matter whose client is coming to their office there. They help no matter who it is, and they have their own caseload. That fixed the problem. Um, so, you know, when we say you can't put trafficking victims in a DV shelter or a homeless shelter, I'm here to say, yes, you can, but you better have some dedicated case managers on site to help mediate. The fourth thing we do is we have a mayor's policy council. They've really been tremendous, especially with the first phase of the plan. The last thing we did or focus on is since we were the first, we knew we wanted to serve as a national municipal model. Mm -hmm. Um, By some miracle, we don't only serve as a national model, but we serve as an international model. We have an amazing team. We have amazing partners like you guys. No, but it's beautiful because even as I'm listening to you, because I got here in 2015 and I started this work in Houston in 2016. And so, so much of this, I was working for all the nonprofits you know, going around a oh, that's and, right. and mm-hmm. um, contracting with we each one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember when all of this stuff was beginning to happen and all these pieces were starting to come together, but I've never listened to you talk mm-hmm. about it. So I'm hearing mm-hmm. it from the other side. I'm like, oh man, I remember when mm-hmm. Rescue America started working with mm-hmm. you in Salvation Army to start placing the people in beds because they yeah. didn't have beds for people. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when we talked about the Watch for Traffic campaign, like, so it's just, it's so, it is amazing to reflect back on the last, you know, six years and be like, dang. And I'm so glad we can do this podcast together because that piece, the humanity where we started and the humanity that you gave and you continue to give to the movement, it's important to stop and reflect on that as all of us have done this work as our team members, sweet Anna sitting across from me. I was just saying the other day, one of our team members, Anna Johnson, has done a wonderful job, really, I mean that, elevating our voice in the community and our brand. And without that work, it's hard to capture the hearts of human beings to understand the depravity and lack of humanity that happens to folks who are trafficked. Mm-hmm. So I think it's okay for us who've been in it for a minute to sit back and be like, you know what? Man, like I said, I forgot about. Oh yeah, we did put some money on. You just because you're just. I'll moving. never forget that. I know it wouldn't have happened because it, because I love you. I love you so much, and yeah, we've been so connected amazing. from the beginning. We were in it together in the trenches, Nino, and yeah. so we have to honor that. I always say honor people who came before us, mm-hmm. honor people who did all the work because we didn't get here without those folks doing it. Yeah. And so as you tell your story and all those pieces, we want to honor that. That's why I'm so excited to have you to be a part of the podcast. This is like, we have to honor it. No, I'm really glad to be here. And, you know, it wasn't just UHT. We were drumming up all these referrals from these city departments, like our health department. I didn't have any case managers to take them. And no one in the existing landscape was going to help me. Because everyone was looking for us to fail so they could continue to do things the way they do them. Right. Somewhat mediocre 
and somewhat ineffectively, and then somewhat effectively. Um, and all of those people are gone. So I'm not talking yeah, about anybody right. currently in the space, and it's good that they're gone. And I'll say it whenever I'm asked or not asked. Um, but the landing, Natasha oh, Paradishi, yeah. that yeah. tiny powerhouse of a woman used to take all of our referrals. Oh, yeah. I couldn't even stand yeah. up some of the programs we were trying to stand up unless she had come in and be like, yeah, we'll take, this is with no grant money. We had only a $50,000 budget when I started. I wasn't fundraising yet because I didn't know exactly what we were going to do. And I refused to just fundraise and not be a good steward of money. So I wanted to know exactly what we were going to be doing and working with and planning. And then you can take it to a funder and say, this is what I need money for. So I wouldn't even fundraise really that first year. Um, But these organizations helped us. And we were all like, Two, I, mean, I always say we started with two or three staff members. Like, what? How do we? I'll be like, yeah. how do we do that? Like, what do we? That's why I got all this gray hair. I mean, I don't understand. But it, it, every Girl, gray hair is too. worth every every piece. You it's a crown of silver. It is, you know, say it again. It's crown, crown of, of silver. silver. Uh-huh. So that's good. That's so weird. That's, okay. Yeah, yeah. typical. So I love that. I love you know. So well, the last objective where I got real emotional was, mm-hmm. you know, from the onset. Something I know we understood very well. I say we, but at that time, it was just me and my assistant. I have a lovely team of five now. And they're incredible because we work very hard and we turn out a ton of work. I don't know why they still work with me or stay, but because it's a demanding pace that we operate at usually. So we set out as an objective that we would serve as the national municipal model. Now, all I had was a plan. We hadn't actually done anything yet except for the assessment. Um, but as we started to take things off and we started to collect the data and we started to do all of the things that we said we'd do in that 30-page plan, and I believe 12 pages of it are actual to-dos, right? Um, get the airports going, get procurement going, get the health department going, get this media campaign launched, ho- host events, set up a collaborative, um, fill the housing gap. All these things are listed out for the constituents to see. Um, we put it on. We put it on there. And in 2019... Three years after we started, we hosted our 1010 Human Trafficking Municipal Fellowship. Mm -hmm. And the mayor and I had gone to the United States Conference of Mayors two or three times in the year preceding. And I said, can we go and start to pitch what we've done, what we're doing, what we're learning? Because I know other cities have this problem. Mm -hmm. And he was like, of course. So we went, we spoke to panels. And then I had this vision to do this 1010, no money. Um, but Jones Day Foundation came through mm, and they so paid wonderful. for us to fly in 24 people from 18 U.S. cities that were mayor's office representatives. And we immersed them in two days and we gave them that procurement executive order that took us a year and a half to write in a binder along with it was this thick. Um, it's about five inches thick. And we gave them all of the things that it took us four years to write, a year and a half to write with our city, the brilliant people at City Legal, the most brilliant people I've ever worked with. Talk about problem solvers um, that crafted the ordinances, right? I just review them and tell them what we want. They're the ones who write them. They're the ones who write the policies. And we handed it to them. And the executive order on procurement's been replicated in six cities across the U.S. since then. And the only thing that put a pause on the activity that was happening from 1010 was COVID Mm -hmm. because people had to shift their priorities. Um, We did that. And then we, because the domestic 1010 was so successful, we hosted an international 1010. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and we hosted four foreign governments, and we were only limited by the fact that we didn't have money to pay for first-class tickets um, because you have to fly them in first-class over 10 hours, and so we were limited. So we did it for four governments, but even the city of Milan has replicated our order, and our mayor will sit there and sign a letter to the mayor of Milan telling him to do this. And these are all the things that people don't know behind the right. scenes because we're very quick to attack our public officials mm -hmm. and make a broad snap judgment based on one headline, one line, one thing. And I was like those people until I started to work there too, I guess. And you go and you see the breadth and the depth of the things that our mayor does for this city. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about sacrifice, the sacrifices that no one will ever know about, um, and how he's literally laid his life down for the city because he does nothing else but work for the people of Houston. And so we have a great example in his leadership. Um, and if you're astute enough to follow it, you'll do well too. Um, but the national municipal model was a total, we're just going to do this one day. We're going to be it. And it happened. Yeah. You know, We just put it down there. We put it on paper and it, it, it happened. And so that's the five major ways that the city works. I know yeah, we, we talked about huge. a lot of wonderful things. And then we have disaster response, which you can never plan for. So right. it's not in the plan. Um, but United Against Human Trafficking helped us with that, too. They helped us do outreach in the shelters along with the landing. And this is like picking up the phone. Natasha called her whole volunteer base. Yep. And they all showed up. And we did cut-to-cut outreach with more than 4,600 people just at the GRB. And then we that did it for three weeks. Yeah. Right after Harvey, yeah, during and after Harvey. Mm -hmm. And we couldn't have done that alone, right. me alone in the shelter. Right. Um, but, you know, the nonprofit community couldn't have gotten access without the mayor's person. Exactly. You know, because right. it's that that allows us to even go into those places. Mm -hmm. So there's so much value in having somebody right. in a mayor's office um, across the U.S. doing this. So those are the five ways we work, plus disasters, and we've had to work on COVID and URI and all of those things too, and we'll do whatever it takes to take the burden off of the nonprofits at that time. From after Harvey, we gave out a lot of grant money. We were, you know, we do a lot of fundraising to supplement my little $50,000 budget. So, you know, we did have money. And, you know, quite frankly, when you finally get grant funding and you need things done like outreach and things like that, and you don't want to hire 20 outreach workers and somebody already has them, why wouldn't you just grant it to them for them to do it for you, Right. Um, and so that's what we do. So, And I think the beautiful undertones of everything that we're talking about is so many people approach human trafficking and they are like, oh my gosh, this issue is so big, it's so overwhelming. And it is. It is huge. What can we do? There's nothing for us to do. Whereas both of you sitting here, we're just recounting in the last six years how much has been done by people who are visionaries, people who are putting in the hard work, and people who are connecting systems that were already disconnected. The nonprofit space was disconnected six years ago. There wasn't a response within all the departments of the mayor's office that you really bridged that gap. You two have bridged the gap between the city and nonprofits working together in so many different ways. And so we can see all of these really tangible things that are shaping our city and now shaping other cities across the country and now internationally, and that's beautiful, and I think such a testament to what can be done. A lot of times I feel like people get overwhelmed and they just more bemoan, and they they watch the news or read books or movies, you know, watch movies that are really scary and sensationalized when there's actually really hard work 
practically that's going on that's helping the lives of survivors and connecting the systems. I think when, as you're talking about that piece and uh, as we move and think through that leadership part, that's the part that I think it ultimately comes to is really deciding what we're going to do as an organization united against human trafficking and the next phase, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I would love to hear both of your oh. responses on that. Where do you think the next steps are the most critical, maybe for the mayor's office in general, or what you would like to see happen in the city or within nonprofits? And as a whole, where do we think we're moving in the anti-human trafficking space? As I talk to our team at United Against Human Trafficking, what I always try to impart, even in a recent all-staff meeting we had, I talk about partnerships and the importance of staying connected in the work. And as leaders of the coalition, what we've seen over the years as we've grown and doing a lot of work around creating the database, the pathway, uh, talking to other uh, folks in other communities, my heart always goes back to that. I think just naturally for me, that's who I am as a person, but in the movement, we have to be very tender around how we nurture our partnerships, okay, and not taking folks for granted. Uh, and what I mean by that, we're lucky that we've been together in this meal since 2015, and, and I love you so much, and you've been there for me in those critical moments and times, and to have a partner like that, but Mino and I, I'm not going to die in this role. You know what I mean? I'm not going to be here forever. There's, God has other plans for me. I mean, I have, I, have, I have dreams. So how do we set a foundation where when it's time for us to go do great work in other spaces, that the movement is still pushing forward? And the what I see that is in the eyes of people like Anna sitting across from me, the future of the movement. How are we speaking life into those folks who are going to take the baton moving forward and raising up the next leaders. So for me, I believe folks in the nonprofit space should really take inventory, self-inventory, about when it's time for you to pass the baton to, my heart is, to survivors. My vision would be, a year from now, do we have an executive level position that we have a survivor in that role, Mm -hmm. in all organizations? I said this last year when we talked on the podcast, because I think, I believe, and I truly want to honor that that is where we have to be for this movement to propel forward, is to have survivors and overcomers on our team really, really informing the work that we do. Because we've laid some great groundwork, you know, with just infrastructure, system stuff. But as we grow and as we push forward, having the voice of survivors in spaces that have impact and change, and not just talking about it as organization, but being about it. Mm-hmm. And we've done some great work this year with our Justice Series. It's a beautiful series that we began. It's, oh, and it's led by one of the most impactful, loving, tender, kind uh, yeah. overcomers that I know, yeah. Kathy. Kathy is amazing. Amazing. And... The way that she has informed even just that series because of her understanding of what it truly means to survive and overcome, it makes our work that much more better. I could never do that. I could never understand what it means to make sure that the creative creative part around that work is important. And I would like to really continue to push that forward. So 
uh, for the, the listeners out there, I would love for you to, to follow our justice series and honor a survivor in our community who's really done some great work about bringing a voice to people of color who have survived this horrible, you know, atrocity of human trafficking, but are thriving and overcome, have overcame and moving forward. So I just believe we have to as focus on partnership and honoring, loving, and giving grace to all of our partners as we push forward and honoring our survivors. I love that. And I love Kathy. Um, if I think about how much help I've had along the way from the things I've already mentioned, I think I must have called her two days before to speak at our international 1010 where the foreign governments came wow. and she showed up and I know she's busy and she showed up. We wanted to pay her. She refused to take payment. I was like, no, Kathy, we pay everybody yeah. that, you know, <laughs> we have funds now. Yeah. Um, and she wouldn't even take it. She wouldn't even send me the bill. So just the grace. And I'm, I mean, total last minute favor. So just that you can call on people, you know, and it's not, we're not friends. We don't socialize, but I know I can call her. And I just think that's the beauty of some of the people I know I can call and they will help me, even though I don't talk to them and we're not friends and socialize outside of work. Um, it's nice to know. I think for, and you touched on it. So one of my favorite things has been having been able to fund Girl Justice and Barbershop Talk because of how impactful I found Girl Justice to be and just how beautifully and graciously it was done. If I was leading that conversation, it wouldn't have gone that way, like at all. It was just so amazing. And so that was one of the amazing things we've gotten to do in this office. But for me, I'll always say um, it has to be a diverse movement. Um, and diversity is grossly lacking. From 2015, when all we had was law enforcement and a few nonprofit service providers, that's a lack of diversity to me, no matter what the officers may have looked like. You've got two players, a nonprofit and law enforcement. We need a diverse group of stakeholders to address this issue, um, especially because this task force that's supposed to be temporary in nature has been funded since 2004. Clearly, there's room for others to participate and do and effectuate change in a way the task force is not called to do, able to do, or supposed to do. So diversity of the people involved, the racial and ethnic makeup of the people involved, because the Swaminarayan Temple case is the perfect example. The labor trafficking case that busted open in New Jersey, or alleged labor trafficking case, where there were 100-plus South Asian men pulled off of a Hindu temple site to build the largest Hindu temple in the world. Okay? The allegations have the telltale signs of trafficking. I didn't see a single former high-level person in the trafficking space, nationally or internationally, post about that, except for me. And I'm not the highest level. You know, I'm talking about people that far outrank me in federal government, in international posts, at the OSCE, at the UN, places like that. I didn't see a single post. Doesn't mean they didn't post about it. I didn't see it. And a lot of those folks, we are connected on LinkedIn. Not everybody, so someone may have. But why? Because nobody knows how to talk about it. Because nobody in this space, in the U.S., or very few people are Indian, even fewer are Gujarati like me, and Gujarati like the temple people and the Hindu sect, that's a mostly Gujarati sect, Gujarat is a state in India, um, and the people that believe in that sect are 100% Gujarati, there's not like people from Punjab or Kerala that believe in that sect, and you have to understand the caste system, even if you don't live in India, it's something you know. 
you have to understand how all of these things play a role in the abuse that these men faced to build what's supposed to be a holy site, which is doubly and triply ironic to me. Um, and it's just an extension of caste violence that they experience at home. And so no one was able to talk about it. But the coalition, your coalition, gave me the space to educate people culturally. So I think that has to be the next phase of it. It's got to get way more diverse than it, than it is. And, you know, I'm a Christian personally, but it shouldn't only be Christians fighting this fight. Um, so I am, I'm even advocating for religious diversity in this space. Um, stakeholder diversity, religious diversity, ethnic diversity, it all has to change. We need more men that aren't in law enforcement, that kind of diversity, right? Because if you have men in the room addressing the topic, typically they're law enforcement, right? So where are the men like Chris Graves and Nate Arneson? You know, where are those guys like that aren't at the strip club, that aren't, not to say all the others are there, but the other thing I'll say about the movement is from my perspective in politics and in city government where administrations change and great policy initiatives start. And then if the new mayor doesn't want them, they stop. You have to do as much as you can while you're in there. It has to be systemic so that when you leave, when you leave or when you're asked to leave or when you're not asked to stay on or your position is terminated or it's not carried through an administration, you have made enough impact in those systems for it to stand the test of time for perpetuity. So an ordinance gives us perpetuity. I got a couple of ordinances on the books, not even knowing if anything would happen with them, but I know that 100 years from now, someone will open them up and say, we've got to do this. And luckily, we were able to get them. So you have to think about perpetuity. You have to think about generations if you're in my position. You have to change the policies and the operating procedures for all of these departments because no one will go through and change that even if they get rid of the position. And like Tamika said, Mayor's term ends 2023. We're not all going to be here forever. Um, succession is important, you know. And then for us, it's the next level, right? We've paid our dues here, done everything we can do. And if you do things right, I mean, there's another level for us to go to, too. And so, and so, you know, people are going to be moving on, I'm sure. I mean, I'm not going to work past December 2023. Quite frankly, I can't imagine having a, a different mayor that I would like to work with more than I've enjoyed working with Mayor Turner. I loved all of this so much. This is incredible. <laughs> Thank yeah. you both so very much for your time and for your transparency and really just honestly and openly speaking about this. I think there's so much good stuff here to really even just think about. Um, I feel like I'm going to go back and listen to it multiple times <laughs> over again. Yeah. So are the, before we close out, is there any last words that either of you would like to say? As a nonprofit, um, United Against Human Trafficking, we work to continue to unite folks in the movement. Mm -hmm. um, so if I can encourage all of our listeners to know that that's a significant value of ours as a, as a coalition, as an organization, and remembering that 2020 and 2021 were really tough years for our community, for all of us. The world will never be the same. And how we do the work will never be the same because of the pandemic. So honoring the work that every organization has done on our coalition, thanking from my heart to yours, thanking the organizations and the partnerships, because we can't do this work alone. So I would just encourage everyone um, 
in a, in, a, in a space where knowing that the work that you did, no matter how small, no matter how big, that it will have ripple effects for generations to come. You have impacted the world, and we love you for the sacrifices that you continue to make. I love you, Mino, and I'm so grateful and thankful for our partnership, our friendship, and our connection, because I would not have been able to do the work that I've done without your support. I feel the same way. So just know I love and appreciate you. So very sweet. Thank you for listening to I Dare You, a podcast by United Against Human Trafficking. Please like and subscribe to the podcast, as well as share this with all of your friends and family. And we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to message us at podcast at uaht.org, or you can find us on all social media platforms. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.